0: Good morning, welcome from me and um, what a beautiful time of worship together, it's so good to be here. Again, welcome at home, welcome in the room, you're all so welcome here. I heard a story, in fact I read a story and it's from the book that we've based this teaching series on, a church called Tove, here it is, I've mentioned it, uh, but just to mention it again, and it's a story about evangelists, the evangelist, Chicago-based evangelist, Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, some of you will have heard of him and come across him. Uh, Moody, a number of years ago, probably about 50 years ago or so, hosted a large contingent of European pastors uh, in, in one of his Northfield, Massachusetts conferences. And uh, the pastors were housed in a dormitory uh, together, and uh, according to European custom of the time, apparently, they all placed their shoes outside their rooms overnight, anticipating that a servant boy would collect them, clean them, and shine them before morning. Can you believe it? Except this was Massachusetts and not England. No servant boys would appear. But Moody noticed the shoes. He refused to embarrass the pastors for their cultural ignorance or rebuke them for their presumption. Instead, he quietly gathered the shoes, took them to his room, and shined them himself. The next morning, Moody's pastor, friend, pastor friends dutifully collected their shined shoes, none the wiser, for the humble service Moody had rendered on their behalf. But there's more to the story. Servanthood is contagious. Turns out one of the pastors witnessed what Moody did in secret. The astonished pastor told a few of his friends. And from that night, a conspiracy of servanthood took charge of the shoe-shining detail. Pastors privately took turns shining their colleague's shoes throughout the remainder of the conference. Now that's Tove. Wouldn't you agree? What a great example, a celebrity pastor of his day, not preening himself, shining his own uh, brand on social media, but shining his friend's Shoes! What a picture of Tove! What a picture of generous service! We've been in a series for the last few weeks, and we've been looking at this idea of Tove of goodness, and we've been saying that God is a Tove God, a generous and good and gracious God. His essence, his identity, is goodness. And because that's who he is, and he makes us in his image, so we as his church, as his people, as his bride, his beloved people, are called to re- represent and resemble his goodness in all the earth. That is our commission. We've been looking at some different ways in which we're called to do that, principally and wholly by representing Jesus to the world. And last week we said that one of the primary manifestations of Jesus' goodness is his abundant generosity. And this week we're going to look at Jesus in the attitude, the identity of servant. And this week's text is fascinating because last week we said that in John's gospel, John begins by having Jesus presenting Jesus to us. Principally, the first activity in this abundant celebration, in a wedding. And and in Mark's gospel, Mark shows us a different image, a different perspective. Jesus not at a wedding, at a celebration, but in a synagogue, teaching. Jesus here, teaching. This is what we read as uh, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue, the meeting place, and began to teach. No wine in sight, folks. It's church. And here they are, gathering, and Jesus is teaching them. The people are gathered together on the Sabbath. There's a hint here, by the way. The Sabbath, a day of rest, a day of worship, set aside to worship for the purpose of restoration. Restoration. For the purpose of lives being made whole after the busyness and the travail of the week are coming before God, and where God repositions us and recreates us in His, in his image so that we might recognize His Tove and represent His Tove again. That's what Sabbath's for a place of replenishment. And, and here on the Sabbath is a hint of what's to come in the story. Here we have Jesus teaching. Now, it's amazing to me. Uh, he, Jesus' teaching, and not a word of His teaching is. Reflected. We, we can guess, we can guess that he was preaching a good old kingdom sermon. <laughs> maybe it was a little bit of, sort of the, some of the material he pushed out there on the Sermon of the Mount. See his social media feed for that. Or maybe it was something else, you know, on sort of generosity. We don't know, but the t- content of his teaching is not recorded, but the tone of his teaching is made evident. What Mark says to us is here. In t- on two occasions, actually, in this particular portion of Scripture, it says the people were amazed at his teaching, not because of what it said, because of how he said it, because he taught them as one who had authority. And then later on, in verse 27, it says, the people say this. What is this? A new teaching. And with authority. That word's fascinating, isn't it? We were praying into that word before the service. Authority. Someone who has authority is somebody who is authorized. Access all areas past, they can go where they please, they can say what they want, they can do what they want, they can do whatever they want. They are in some way a representative of someone else, they have authority. The Greek word, if you care about these things, most of you probably don't, and perhaps you shouldn't, but for those that do, is exousia. comes from two words, a compound word, ek, meaning out, and usia, meaning being, essence, true essence. Exousia is to have exousia to ooze. It's for what's within to come out. Jesus is, what, what is within him is coming out and people recognize the force of it. And what they see is this isn't just this man's true essence. All right, it is, but it's also God's true essence. A synonym for exousia or authority would be influence. Freedom, the freedom to do what you want. Power. Or even, to use a word that we've heard a lot in the last year, privilege. To have exousia, to have authorities to have power or privilege. What is power? What is power? Biblically speaking, uh, uh, gospel, gospelly speaking, is that a word? It is now. I don't have the authority actually to make new words, but there we go. But the word power comes from the, the Latin word, at least in English, it comes from the Latin word, posse. Is anyone in a posse? You are now, the word means uh, to be able to, it's the same word that we get possibility from. To have posse, to have power, to have the possibility, the ability to do what you want to do. To have agency, you've heard some people use that word. There are different kinds of power. Uh, a, a psychologist, wonderful psychologist, Diane Landberg, wrote in a, just a majestic book, Redeeming Power, she writes about a number of different kinds of power. She speaks about verbal power. This is the ability to use our voice to shape things around us. By the way, this is interesting. This includes the power of silence. Anybody ever given you the silent treatment? You ever had it? It's powerful, right? No words spoken, and yet there's power in it. Emotional power, affection can influence. Kind of emotion. I'm quite emotional. I'm getting a little emotional now. And maybe it's influencing you in some way. Actually, as well, we can withdraw emotion, can't we, to influence and control people? Again, have you ever had the, the cold shoulder, the silent? Don't I don't advise this, but the silent treatment, when coupled with the cold shoulder, it can be a very powerful dyad, a duo. Think of it. Physical power, that's obvious. Strength. Now, some people don't necessarily look imposing, but they have a physical presence, don't they? That's physical power. We know of intellectual power. You know, some people say it's not what you know, it's who you know. Don't believe them. Sometimes it's what you know. (laughs) Who this time last year had heard of Chris Whitty? Patrick Valance? You've heard of them now. Why? Their intellectual prowess has given them power. An ability to shape how the whole nation behaves. You don't think they've got power. You've been in your house much of the last year because of their knowledge. Economic power. We know this one. Money talks. Elon Musk is apparently trying to get into space. (laughs) Using his economic power. And we know of spiritual power too. There are so many different kinds of power. Well, who has it? That's what power is. Who has it? Well, everyone has it. Everyone has some. Everyone has some posse, some possibility. Think of a baby, the most vulnerable person that we know. A little baby in its cot at night, starting to get cold or hungry or maybe needing a change and just recognizing something's wrong in the environment, not able to verbally speak it, not able to move in any any coordinated way, beginning to cry. And the parents... The parents are awake. The parents are stirred. Hopefully, if they're good parents, they're stirred with empathy. Maybe they're stirred with empathy and a little bit of frustration, but there they are. They're by the car, and they're trying to meet the need of the child. The child has power. Power to shape events in the home. Power to use that voice to influence behavior. Everyone has some power. Viktor Frankl. Psychoanalyst, psychologist, psychiatrist, amazing person, wrote a classic book, Man's Search for Meaning, about what he learned in surviving the Holocaust. The most, we just remembered, haven't we, Holocaust Memorial Day this week, the most brutal and evil thing in the last generations. You know, six million Jewish people put to death in death camps across Europe. People separated from their homes, their families, put to death, abused, killed at random. But not entirely powerless. Frankl himself came to the conclusion through his experience that those who survived the concentration camps were those that held on to what power remained in their hands. He says this, everything can be taken from a man, from a person, but one thing the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. Profound, mind blowing thing to say. But Frankel wanted to hold on to the fact that everybody retained some power. You know, Amy and I had an extraordinary opportunity when we lived in America. We, we spent a, f- a few days in Washington, D.C., and we spent some of that time in the Holocaust Museum. I couldn't call it a great day in any sort of sense. It was, it was impactful, it was powerful, it was moving, it was gutting, honestly. And we had an occasion, a moment in the midst of that where we saw a lecture from somebody who herself had survived the Holocaust. I have a hunch it was actually somebody that became quite famous and a psychologist. But I can't remember exactly, but in the midst of her talk about her experience, she said these words and I will never forget them. She said this, suffering is a part of every person's life. Misery is a choice. And I was broken by those words. We all have agency. We all have power. And, we, and we, I just want to say this now. I want to speak to every person here. Uh, probably, particularly, some of us who are younger and have grown up in a different environment. But we must resist the riptide in our culture at the moment, which is trying to divide the world into victims and villains. Life is not that simple. Even those of us who have been victimized, and that is real, must not assume the status of victims. The truth is we all retain agency. We all retain possibility, even in the most extraordinarily dark and evil circumstances. Now hear me on this. I'm not saying for a minute, I'm not saying for a minute that every one of us has an equal amount of power. Clearly that's not true. We live in a world where there are profound inequalities perhaps as many now as ever, perhaps more. And we've seen evidence of that in the last year. Racially, we've seen that. Socially, we continue to see that in our own city and more broadly across the world. We'd be, we'd be kidding if we said anything different. But it is not true to say that nobody has power. In fact, to, to do that, to give somebody, to afford somebody the status of perpetual victim is to disempower them. We mustn't be obsessed by how much power we have. What we've got to become infatuated with as the church is how we're going to use our power for good. We all have power. How are we going to use it? What is power for? Well, we've seen the scripture, Genesis 1, we've seen it. Power is actually given by God. It's derived from God, delegated by God, given to his people, given to all human people to create To create goodness and life and possibility. Genesis 1 is the image of what God wants power to be used for. By all of his people. By every human being. But we see in the story power is abused, subverted. It's used not to come into friendship with God but to react against him. And so a wound is placed in the earth and we see the abuse of power. We, we use, we're supposed to use our power to manifest and share God's goodness and His likeness, and His light and His grace. And instead, too often, we see abuse of power. I just sing last night, I don't know if you've seen this, but Marcus Rashford, somebody who most of you have heard of, heard of if you did, weren't a football fan, you knew of him then, but if you, even if you're not a football fan, you've heard of him now. Somebody using social media to racially abuse him. Even last night, how is this happening? An abuse of power. You may make an argument social media is a good or it's bad. It's probably ambivalent. It's simply a tool in our hands, but it affords power. And there is consistently, when you put power in human hands, it is abused. But when it comes to power, the question, as I've said, is not whether we have it. Resist any narrative that says you don't, you do. And actually you become dangerous when you don't realize you do. The question is, what will you do with it? And here, of course, Jesus is our guide. Just meditate with me in these moments to come on how our Lord Jesus uses power. His extravagant grace, mercy, and generosity. Look at this. Just then, a man in the synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. It was louder than that. Be quiet, Jesus said sternly. Come out of him. What does Jesus do? Firstly, be quiet. You see, this man has become a spectacle He's being shamed in this moment. You can imagine the situation in the synagogue as the people are shocked immediately by the spectacle, by the noise. You know, you can imagine rolling their eyes. Oh, he's at it again. Oh, for goodness sakes. Maybe his own family are just beginning to shift away a little bit from him again. And this shame is being poured upon him again, poured upon him, poured upon him. And Jesus looks at him with mercy and says, be quiet, silences the demon in order to protect the dignity of the man. What a stunning example of a use of power. Jesus uses verbal power. This man's verbal power has been overcome. Jesus uses his power, his verbal power, to silence the demon. The man's physical power has been overwhelmed. And Jesus steps in. Takes control of the situation. Notice he doesn't draw attention to himself. Jesus doesn't draw attention to himself. He's not looking to his friends, his his aides, his posse, saying, hey, look, you might want to get this one. Can you catch this one? We'll put this on Instagram a little bit later. Just look at what I'm about to do. Are we rolling? We're rolling. Come out of him. No, actually, you've seen Mark's gospel again and again and again. Jesus trying to silence people from being his PR machine not trying to build a brand. He's trying to share power. Give himself, surrender himself for the benefit of others. He silences the demon. Secondly, he uses that same authority to free the man. Our friend is set free. No longer will he be bound. No longer will every one of his relationships be defined by this deficiency, by this oppression. But he is free to make friends. He's free to be part of the community. He's free to have honest relationships. He's free to go where he pleases without fear that he's going to be overwhelmed again. He is truly set free. This is a good Sabbath. This is truly a Sabbath, a restoration day, a revelation day. Why? Because Jesus uses his power to set somebody else free. He empowers this victim. And so he does the Tove work of God. You see, the Tove use of power is always about using power to serve others. That is the only safe use of power. When it is employed for the benefit and the blessing of others. Tove power is clothed in humility. It is bathed in compassion. It is soaked in love. And it is used in service. Humble service. And so a a Tove church is a church that resembles and represents Jesus. Call to the vulnerable to empower them. And we are in a time of reckoning. Every institution, I think in the last two decades, has been judged. Go back to 2008, the banking crisis, financial crash, commerce judged. Remember the government expenses scandal? Our, na- our nation's government judged. You Remember uh, the cover-up in the BBC over the sexual abuse, Jimmy Savile and others. Our national media judged. Me too more recently. The entertainment industry globally judged. Last year with the death of George Floyd and all that came around that, not just in the States but across the West, a recognition of how a racial injustice is still alive in societies. Structures and systems as well as individual behaviors judged. And judgment begins with the house of God. We are taught that in scripture. We have seen with the recent ICSA report, uh, information on the endemic abuse of power in the church. Not just the Catholic church, the Church of England. Every church. Sexual abuse uh, amongst, uh, amongst clergy even. Of the most vulnerable. Children. Abuse of power. And what was more more abhorrent and grievous. than the fact that it could happen in the first place. Is that it's been covered up. Compounding abuse of power. With further abuse of power. This is not tove. It breaks God's heart. Leaders too weak. To face up to their own failings and the failings of the institution. Choosing to preserve the institution over the individual. And in heaven, God is angry. Racism. You know, after the death of George Floyd, many of us, didn't we? We began conversations with our friends about what this meant for them. I had a conversation, many conversations, but in one particular conversation with a dear friend sitting on a bench in a park, and asked him what his experience had been, and he said, shared with me the story that many of you have heard, many of you know, which is the first week after arriving in this country from Jamaica, his mother attended a Church of England church, and after the service, the vicar came up to her and said, please don't come back next week. A staggering abuse of power. It beggar's belief, What is our response? Well, it begins with grieving, weeping, and mourning. We ourselves, many of us, will have experienced what it is like to be on the end of somebody abusing power, bullying in some way. Maybe. Or maybe sexual abuse. Maybe racist abuse. Maybe even recently. If that's you, we grieve and we mourn with you. And God in heaven grieves and mourns with you. But we need to, as the church, return to Christ. This is a time for repentance. For returning. The gospel is one constant reminder of how our tove God works. The incarnation, Philippians 2, we read this let the same mind, let the same attitude be in you as was in Christ Jesus, who, though he uh, was in the uh, form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be grasped. But instead, he gave himself, he gave up power. He gave up power. He became like us, humbled himself. And on the cross, we see the full extent that God goes to to give up power in order to empower, in order to heal those who have been disempowered. By sin, all of us have been stained by sin. And Jesus willingly extends a hand to us to bless us, take upon himself our victimization in order to heal us. And in the resurrection, God raises Jesus up to initiate a new community of Tove. As we sang before, the grave's still empty. And God's power has been made perfect. But it's made perfect through weakness. This is the subversion of power in the gospel. It's as we come close to God in weakness that we actually experience His empowerment. And so our job as the church is not to sort of I'm going to use a phrase, I use it advisedly, man up. Our job is to kneel down in humility because that's the posture Jesus took. And so that is our attitude with power. We understand we cannot bear power safely on our own. We must always give it back to him. We must always share it with our brothers and sisters. And so we, as we return, we also resolve We make it our resolution to become a people of Tov. We have made a resolution here to become a church of Tov. To give every person, whatever their status, whatever their nation, their color, their tribe, their tongue, their sexuality. We will treat them with dignity and honor and respect. We will serve them in love because of Jesus if, it, if it's necessary, we'll shine their shoes. We might even, as our Savior did, wash their feet. We repent and we resolve. We return and we resolve. And we pray. Let me pray for us.